So I gave Bertha and Oliver a copy of my latest book, which almost everybody hates. Um, but I heard someone say this last week that it's the ultimate feel-good book um, because it's what we deserve but we will not get. For those of you who don't know, the title is Dangerous God, Wrath, Vengeance, Recompense, and Terror. Um, it's the side of God that your average Christian church will not talk about anymore, um, which is, I think, blasphemous. I think this is a stench in God's nostrils that we can't honestly talk about who he reveals himself to be. So I thought I would start this way on Easter. Uh, you should be in hell. You should be. You should have been in hell yesterday, or shall we say the day before, or even the day before that. We understand we have a holy God, and you're not holy, nor am I. So we've got a huge problem here, right? We've got a huge problem. Uh, I thought I'd share with you just to, so we, I want us, listen, what I want to do, what I'm trying to do is, is I want us to think deeply about this amazing gift we have in Christ. And if you don't understand about hell, you don't understand, right? You think you're, well, you know, if, you, if you're biblically illiterate, you just think you deserve a Savior. Well, you don't deserve a Savior. What you deserve, what I deserve is justice. We deserve justice. So I'm just going to quote a famous theologian on uh, what hell would be like. And I'm doing this because what I want you to do, I want you to leave today, and I want you to love the cross more than you've ever loved the cross before. And I want you to treasure it. I want you to, to uh, worship the Lord Jesus in a way maybe that you haven't ever or maybe in a long time. Because you and I deserve God's worst. If you're biblically literate, you understand this. I'm not assuming that all of you are. But let me just start with this quote. He's talking about Revelation 19, 15, which, which makes the reference to the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Okay? He says, It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness for just one moment, but you must suffer it for all eternity. Listen, if you don't have a Savior, this is where we're headed. We're talking about eternal conscious punishment forever. Now, I know people hate this. The modern church hates this. Nobody talks about this. But if we don't talk about this, if we don't know that we have provoked God, we have little to... What, what, it, what it means is we'll end up with just some marginal religious interest in the cross. But if you realize you're condemned before holiness, just as I am, we, we must have Jesus, right? He does, he, he, he's not a religious icon to me. I've got to have a great Savior because I've offended a great God. You know, I love how John Piper talks about it. He says, um, how does he say it? He says, you know, if you offend a toad, it's not a big deal. If you offend a man, it might be a problem. If you offend God, eternal hell awaits. I'm trying to give us some perspective, okay? So let me finish with the quote. You must suffer it for all eternity. You will know without question that you must wear out long ages, millions and millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with His almighty merciless vengeance. You will absolutely lose all hope of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. 
And when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know everything you have suffered is but a pinpoint compared to what remains. Your punishment will be infinite. Now, if we don't grasp the, the, the price of, a, of provoking and offending a holy God, we won't cherish the cross. We won't cherish Christ as we ought to. I'm going to give you three reasons why it's important for us to have a biblical view of what hell is about. If we do not have this, we will have a limited sense of just how holy he is, just how terrifyingly magnificent he is. We will not fear him as we are commanded over and over and over again. You must fear the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. You have to fear him before you can ever learn to love him. This is the biblical, this is the biblical pattern, okay? Um, if, if, if we don't have a deep sense of how we've offended God, we will, we will not have a, a deep worship of his long-suffering grace toward us. If we do not have a deep sense of what it means to offend God, we won't have a deep sense of what our sin really is. Now, I know that, that in the modern world, sin is, is, uh, is made light of. In fact, I think sin has more or less been purged. That word has been purged out of the lexicon for most people, right? But as Bible believers and Bible readers, we understand that it's monstrous that it's horrific, that it's a personal insult to the God who speaks trillions of galaxies into existence. I have insulted God with my sin. How did David say it? Against you, you only have I sinned, which is no hyperbole. Thirdly, if we don't plums, plumb the, 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 the unfathomable height and breadth and depth of the, of the cross, it's because we have not taken into account Exactly what we deserve. Jesus didn't die on the cross for health, wealth, and prosperity. He died on the cross because you urgently needed a Savior to be saved from the wrath of God. You say, Jim, I, I'm not sure I like your Easter sermon. Well, um, what I hope to do is that all of us will walk out of here with a deeper sense of what the value of this holiday really is, this Resurrection Sunday. So what's at stake in understanding the doctrine of hell? Nothing less than rightly comprehending God, rightly comprehending our sin, rightly comprehending the cross, and rightly worshiping the Lord. Let me say this and I'll move on. If Jesus said that eternal hell is just, right, and necessary... And he did say that. How infinitely incomprehensible is the holiness of God? The modern church has no concept of, of what it means for God to be holy and us not to be holy. You know, every man that saw him, I say this a lot to you, but every man that saw God in the Bible, they all had the same reaction. What did they do? You all know what they did. They all hit their face as fast as they could. Every one of them. Every one of them. And we're... We tend to be pretty casual and cavalier with this guy named Jesus, right? Well, he's my friend. Well, we understand he uses that word in the New Testament regarding his disciples. We get that. But there's this whole other aspect of him that is ignored in the modern church. That he is the Lion of Judah. 
that he is coming in wrath and vengeance. He will uh, make recompense for those who have sinned against him and, un and are unreconciled. If Jesus said eternal hell is just right and necessary, how infinitely blameworthy it is to treat the glory of God with indifference and contempt. This may be the greatest sin in the modern church. This feigned allegiance, this feigned affection, right? It's just feigned. I don't really love him. I, I'm not really living according to his word. I know I, t I should tip my hat to him. Yeah, I, I believe he's he 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 he's historically uh, he's a historical figure, and I, I believe I believe what the Bible says. I I believe it, and so I, I'm going to tip my hat to him. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't tip your hat to Jesus. He's not interested in that. You know. Um, the other thing I want to say: if Jesus said that eternal hell is just, right, and necessary. What infinite glory and purity God must possess that everlasting suffering is the fitting punishment for dishonoring and disobeying him. And lastly, if Jesus said that eternal hell is just and right and necessary, what a stunning, shocking, amazing, unbelievable thing Jesus has done on the cross for you and me. And I, I don't know if I can I don't know if I can do any good here. I don't know if you, if, if you can be affected. I don't know if you can walk out different than when you walked in. I don't know that you, if you can have a deeper sense of what it truly meant for Jesus to die for you. I, I don't know. But what I'm trying to do is give you the, the contrast here. You deserve to be in hell yesterday. And you deserve to be there forever. Eternal conscious punishment. It's, it's the most hated doctrine in the church. Most churches won't talk about it. But it's what you and I deserve. And because today is today, because today is Resurrection Sunday, those of you who know him and love him, those of you who have repented of your sins and believed in him by faith, you haven't trusted in the church, you haven't trusted in an ordinance, you're trusting in him, right? Yeah. We have every reason to rejoice exceedingly you should be in hell today and if you don't know Christ you soon will be lest you repent what is the most scandalous doctrine in the Bible that eternal conscious punishment is real no the most scandalous doctrine in the Bible is that God saves sinners this is a scandal it's the scandal of heaven that he is just and the justifier of the many. He's a just God. He should send all of his rebellious creatures to, to damnations. What, that's what he should do. He's a just God. But he's also the justifier of those who will repent and believe. You know, I, I, I say this a lot, but it's like, you know, <laughs> this is the best news that's ever fallen on the ears of man. And, uh, you know, it, it, it always stuns me why churches aren't full. 
of, of men and women who want to hear about this. Who want to hear the truth. I'm, I, it's always stunning to me. I understand, I understand it theologically, but... And I, I want to do this little thing, too. I want to do this little excursus, and then we're going to look at the cross real quick, and then we're going to look at the resurrection, okay? But I want to do this little... I want to ask you this question. Why did God create the world the way he created it? Now, I think your average pedestrian might say something like, for me. It's all about me. I mean, they may not say that, but that's how they live, right? It's, it's all about me. God's there to make me happy. God's there to make my marriage better. God's there to prosper me. God's there to serve me. Why did God create the world the way he did? Why did God create angelic beings who could rebel against him? Why did God put the tree in the garden? Why did God create man and woman who could and would rebel against him? Why does he do this? Why does he create like this? The answer is very clear. I know most of you probably already know. He created intelligent, sentient, moral beings to display His glory, Isaiah 43, 7, specifically to display the glory of His grace, Ephesians 1, verse 6, 12, and 14. God's grace could not be displayed before what? Sin. And God means for all of His attributes to shine forth, right? This is not difficult. This is not difficult. Why has God created the world He created? For the glory of His grace, which would redound to His Son in the redemption of a people, an undeserving people. This is uh, things that obviously we should know. The glory of God reaches its apex in the glory of His grace in the cross of Jesus Christ. Why anything? Why everything? Why is the world the way it is to display the glory of God's grace in Christ crucified? That's why everything. That's why everything. There are no lesser reasons than that. God meant for His Son to be crucified. For the salvation of a people in such a way that Christ would be glorified and his people would be redeemed for their eternal joy. This is why everything, why anything, right? It's not difficult. All you got to do is read your Bible. It's right there. And I'm going to share the text with you, Romans 9, 22 to 23. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, which he is, and to make his power known, which he is willing to do, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why did he do it? Right here, Romans 9, 23. He did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. That's why he did it. That's why he's doing all things. That's why creation and providence exists. That Christ would be glorified in the redemption of a people. I'm just saying to you, beloved, don't let it be small. You can't let, you can't let your Christianity be small. It's got to change everything. It's got to change everything. If it doesn't change everything, you have every reason to doubt whether it's genuine. 
Okay? If you believe sovereign, reigning, awesome, you know, omnipotent, omniscient God is in the womb of Mary, is in the manger in Bethlehem, is on the mount preaching, and is on the way on a donkey into Jerusalem to be crucified. If you really believe that, it will change everything. If it's just dogma to you, I lovingly say you're wasting everybody's time. If it's just dogma. It's got to change everything. These are some of the things I was contemplating this week as I thought about Resurrection Sunday. So yes, the God of Psalm 97, before whom mountains melt like wax, the God of Psalm 99, uh, the God before whom peoples tremble and the earth shake, the God of Psalm 145, the God of unsearchable greatness is nailed to a tree. And you think Christianity is just showing up for church. No, it's not. To quote some of my favorite preachers in the States, hell will be full of churchgoers. I've been doing this long enough to say that to you. Hell will be full of churchgoers. Because that's all it ever was. It was just church going. It's just church going. My life never changed. My sin, I, I never put down my sin. I never sought to obey Jesus in the way that he talks about. What? You know, how he talks about in a sacrificial way. Just church going. Hebrews 2, 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I, I submit to you that we will not escape. No man, woman, boy, or girl will escape if we neglect the salvation that's offered to us in the Bible. We will not escape. And we will look the God that we have offended in the eye. What, is it, what does Revelation call him? The angry lamb. The angry lamb. So the ultimate purpose of creation is the communication of God's grace for the happy praise of His redeemed people. Some of you remember Mel Gibson's movie, right? Did you all see the movie about 18 years ago? Uh, the Passion of the Christ. Have you guys all seen this? It's uh, very realistic um, as far as the scourging and the, and the crucifixion. Some people called it anti-Semitic. Um, so it raises the question, who killed, who killed Jesus? Well, yeah, the Jews according to the Bible. Yeah, the Gentiles, according to the Bible, out of Acts 4.27. But preeminently, this was God's plan, right? From an eternity past, this was God's plan. You guys know the text. Acts 2.23, This man, Jesus Christ, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. This was God's idea. And if this doesn't make you want to get on your face and worship, this is God's idea. This is not our idea. This wasn't Adam's idea when he realized he had offended a holy God. This is not Adam's idea. It wasn't Eve's idea. It was God's idea. 
I'll save a people for myself, for the glory of my son, and for the joy of the redeemed. I'll do that. I'll magnify myself for, the, for every moral being to behold and worship. As they behold my grace, my unfathomable grace, that they do not deserve. Which, of course, grace, by definition, is undeserved. So as we look at the cross, we realize that men of their own free will meant evil. God meant for good. Men of their own free, depraved, rebellious will, they murdered the Son. God of His own free, gracious, loving will redeemed His people. God the Father delivered up His Son, Romans 8, 32. Jesus the Son laid His life down of His own initiative, John 10, 18. The crucifixion was God-ordained, God-decreed, God-planned, God-initiated. It is God's idea. So why is He going to be scourged and crucified? He's the Good Shepherd. Right? He's the good shepherd. He loves his sheep. <clears throat> and he's the warrior God. He's putting himself between the enemy and his people, defeating Satan, sin, death, and hell. Jesus says, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. Nobody took his life. Nobody could take his life, but he laid it down for the likes of you and me. This can't be about church going if we actually believe this. Can't be about church going. You guys know Hebrews 10, 31. This is the verse that I opened my book with. You know, the book nobody likes. Oh, three people like it. Right, Rohan? Three people, at least three people. Hebrews 10, 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. The modern church doesn't believe this anymore. Or if they do believe it, they, they, they act like they don't believe it. They're more concerned with health, wealth, and prosperity. Right? How God can serve me and bless me. Instead of how I can, you know, worship this amazing God who took on flesh and was crucified in my behalf. It's astonishing. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Perfect holiness is terrifying to people who are not holy like you and me. It was Isaiah's problem, right? It was Isaiah's problem. Isaiah 6, 5. Woe is me, I am ruined. He saw Yahweh high and lifted up. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Some of the other translations say, I am undone, I am lost, I am doomed, I am destroyed. He is the most dangerous being in the cosmos. That's Yahweh, if you are unreconciled to him. And that's what Resurrection Sunday is all about. That's what it's all about. You needed a great Savior, and he provided one. And if you merely feign allegiance and affection to him, there's a psalm, and I'm going to butcher it. For those who feign allegiance, their punishment shall be forever. That's, a, that's probably a, a poor paraphrase of the, I'll find it for you if you want it. 
Beloved, all I'm trying to do is, is help you get to where God brought me this week. Um, that this is the biggest thing in your life. This is the most serious thing in your life. You know, human life is pretty serious. You get your 76.9 years and you're out of here. What's going to happen then? What's going to happen then? Well, we know there's an eternity waiting for us. And the Bible clearly teaches it's either hell or it's heaven. There's nowhere else to go. Purgatory's a joke. It's made up. No such thing. There's no place to go. It's heaven or hell. That's it. That's it. Isaiah's problem is your problem. It's my problem. We need a great Savior. You know, if you've been around very long, you know that I don't like why questions. You know, people are always asking the pastor, why this, why that? What's the most important question in the Bible? Who knows? It's not why. Who knows what it is? What did the Philippian jailer ask? What must I do to be saved, right? Well, what was the answer? What was the answer to the what question? It's who. You remember how Peter preached it? Acts 4.12. There's, there's salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's why I hope you're sitting in this redeemed garage on Resurrection Sunday because you realize there is salvation in no other name. There is salvation in, uh, in simply going to church. There is no salvation in denominationalism. There is no salvation in having the right creed. There is no salvation in moralism. There is only salvation in Jesus Christ. Period. And listen, don't you trust the prayer you prayed. Don't you trust it. If you, if you prayed the prayer when you were eight and you believe you were saved, well, maybe you were, praise God. But don't you be trusting in that prayer. Don't you be trusting in your baptism. You'd be trusting in Jesus, right? You'd be trusting in Jesus. And examine yourself, as Paul told the Corinthians, to make sure that you are in the faith. It's why we're here. It's why we're here. God has provided a Savior. So as we do every Resurrection Sunday at the International Church of Milan, we're going to spend a few minutes looking at the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, you guys remember John 18 when they came to get him. What a joke. There was a couple hundred guys that came to get to arrest Jesus. You remember what happened, right? And he said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. What happened? And he said, I am. What happened? He knocked them all down <laughs> just by the power of his name. He knocked, he knocked them all down. Maybe five to six hundred guys. He knocked them all down. So we, we already know this is, not a, this is not a real arrest. This is Jesus laying his life down for his Jesus has all the power. What did he say somewhere else? He, got, he, he could call 12 legions of angels. How many, how many angels would that be? Who knows what 12 legions of angels would be? 72,000 angels. He could call 72,000 angels. He's going to the cross for the glory of the Father and for the joy of his people. He's going to the cross. So they tied him up.
And they arrested him. They took him to Pilate. Pilate could find no guilt in him. You know the text, John 18. But he thought he could maybe satisfy the bloodlust of the Jewish leaders, so they had him scourged. Now, you know what a Roman scourging is, it, particularly if you've seen Gibson's movie. It's, it's very accurate. It's, it's a whip of braided leather strips with metal balls, sharp bone, and metal shards in it, and it rips a man's back apart. Um, it's historically known that a back could be so shredded that ribs would be visible, the spine would be visible, veins, muscles, and even some organs might be visible. This is what a scourging was like. You guys remember Isaiah 53, 5. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. John 19, 2 and 3 tells us that after they scourged God, they mocked him, right? They put a crown of thorns on his head, purple robe, and they mocked him, and they hit God in the face. They spat on God, and they beat God on the head with a reed. And Pilate said, Behold the man! And the chief priests in the crowd cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar. So Israel has utterly rejected her Messiah. It's a lot like what the modern church has done. We don't talk about wrath, vengeance, recompense, and terror anymore. We don't talk about that. We reject that God, that God who's like that. We don't talk about Him. We don't want that God. We'll make up our own Jesus, our pseudo-Jesus. He's pliable. He's functional. He provides utility. I can get whatever I want out of this Jesus. It's the same thing. The Pharisees denied that they had a king, any king other than Caesar. And there are millions of people in the church who are denying that Jesus Christ, the biblical Jesus Christ, because they've created an illusion, right? In their heads, a pseudo-Christ. A pseudo-Christ. John 19, 17 tells us that Jesus carried his own cross. This is astonishing to me after the scourging. He would have been paraded through the city. Uh, four soldiers around him, a fifth soldier carrying a placard stating his crime. You remember his crime? Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. This was not a crime. <laughs> this was a fact. Because the crucifixion was so horrifying and ghastly that many had to be dragged there, but not Emmanuel. John 19, 17 to 18 tells us they took Jesus to Golgotha and they crucified him. They stripped him naked. They laid him on a crossbeam. They took seven inch spikes. They drove them through his wrists. They hoisted God vertically. They drove spikes through his feet. And as the beam was dropped into the hole, God's shoulders would have been dislocated. Most of you realize that death on a cross is excruciatingly slow and is by asphyxiation ultimately as the victim can no longer find the energy to push up so they can breathe. The birds and the dogs would begin to scavenge. So crucifixion was the worst death known to the Romans at this time. And that's what Jesus was subjected to. You guys know Isaiah 53.10, But God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, to render him a guilt offering. God means for us to look at the bloody, brutal, savage cross 
That's how heinous your sin is. Some of you may be engaged in a pattern of sin. You got to repent, man. You got you got to stop. This is what your sin looks like. This is what your sin costs. If you you, you, you got to repent. You can't be cavalier. You can't be cavalier about your sin. Call yourself a Christian. You can't be. This is what it costs. This is what it looks like. It looks like a man being destroyed. This is what the sin wages look like. You guys know Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You know, the why question. Who knows the why question I like? Anybody remember? There is one why question I like. I hate most why questions. God doesn't really address very many why questions in the Bible. I don't like why questions. I'll do my best, but I... what's the best? Why would God die for someone like me? That's my favorite why question. That should be your favorite why question, right? Why, why would eternal living God be butchered for me. Listen, beloved, you've never been loved like this. You will never, ever be loved like this. The way Christ loves his people. You can't let it be small. You can't let it be a church thing. So you guys know that Jesus was alive on the cross from the third hour to the ninth hour. That's 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Total of six hours. Matthew 27 tells us that darkness fell on the land from the sixth to the ninth hour, symbolic of God's curse falling upon Jesus as our sins were laid upon him. Matthew 27 goes on to tell us that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he takes on the sin of his people and he is separated from his father from the first time? And from an eternity past, he'd never been separated from his father and the spirit. And yeah, people always talk about, you know, the, the horror of the butchery of the cross. But th there's no question in my mind, this was the worst for Jesus, right? When he was separated in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. Matthew 27 tells us that he yielded up his spirit. I want you to notice they didn't kill him. They didn't kill him. He yielded it up. He did that. He yielded up his spirit. The veil was rent, the earth shook, the rock split, and many saints came out of their tombs. <laughs> A lot going on here when the Son of God died. I want to make sure you understand what's going on here. These are your wages. These are your wages. What are the wages of sin? Death. Death. And he died it. He died it, right? The wages of sin is death. He died that death. You deserve hell. You should have been there yesterday. And I should have been right there with you. Beloved, we have provoked a holy and dangerous God. And you and I deserve to have the full weight of God's omnipotent wrath to land on us for a million ages. But if you have come to Christ, 
It will not happen. I'm always astonished at how superficial uh, this is to most, seemingly. It seems to be superficial to very many people, right? It is astonishing. So Jesus laid his life down. He said in John 10, I have authority. Lay it down. And I have authority to what? Why are we here today? I have authority to what? Take it up again. So he laid it down and he's going to take it up again. You don't get to kill God. You can't kill God. Right? No man can kill God. That's why we're here April 17, 2022 in this redeemed garage because he is risen and he is reigning and he is returning. Amen? That's why we're here. We don't worship a dead martyr. I know most of the rest of the world think, they, they think we're simpletons, we're worshiping a dead martyr. We are not. We are worshiping the living, crucified, risen, reigning, returning Savior. This is who we are worshiping. And I'm not going to waste any good pulpit time on uh, the skeptics who say the resurrection never happened. Listen, you're either a Bible believer or you're not. Okay, it's just a waste of time to talk about that. You either believe the Bible or you don't believe the Bible. If you don't believe the Bible, you shouldn't be in here. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, so I'm not going to waste any time on that. The Bible affirms that Jesus appeared no fewer than 10 times over a period of 40 days to more than 500 people. It's the most thoroughly attested event in ancient history. You don't want to believe it? Don't believe it. So last few minutes, I just want to highlight one of those appearances. Okay? Because we learn so much. All of his appearances, we learn a tremendous amount. But in this appearance, we learn something that's vitally Important. And we're, we're, hey, we love it when the historians pile up the data and the scholars and, and you know, those smart people. And they, they pile up all the data and all the inferences. And, and, and the only reason, the only reason, the only reason that these, these 11 guys, you know, could live the lives they live and be martyred and never say it was false <laughs> tells you a lot. There are a lot of inferences here, but, you know, we're, we're, we're excited about all the historical facts that can be piled up. But that's not why the true believer ultimately believes. We're, we're thankful for that. It's wonderful. We love it. It's biblical. But we don't believe because of facts. We believe because of relationship, right? So let's just talk about that for a few minutes. I'm going to turn over to John 20. John 20. John 20. And I'm going to be looking at verse 11. John 20, verse 11. John 20, verse 11. This is Mary Magdalene. John 20, verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Mary is weeping for no good reason. She has much love, but she has no faith. This is the shocking thing about the, the resurrection. None of his disciples or followers believed it was going to happen. They were the first skeptics. They were the first skeptics. They didn't believe it. She's talking to him and she doesn't know it's him. She's so unbelieving at this point that she, she doesn't recognize that it is him. Why does Mary ultimately believe? Why does she ultimately believe? Verse 16. What does he say to her? You tell me. What does he say to her? Mary! Right? Exclamation point. Mary! It's me! Right? And the sheep heard her shepherd. And nobody could say her name like him. This is why real Christians believe. It's relational, right? It's relational. I don't just believe the facts, the right facts. I'm in relationship with the shepherd. The shepherd calls one of his sheep by name and she knows who it is. It's never only about right doctrine. Again, it's about relationship. And you guys know what Jesus says over in John 10, 26. You remember what he said to the, the, the religious guys? He said, he said, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. Now, a lot of people don't like it when Jesus talks like this or when the God of the Bible talks like this. You don't believe because you're not mine. It's clearly what he says. A lot of people don't like it. A lot of people call themselves Christians. They don't like it when Jesus talks like this. But the Holy Spirit wanted you and I to know that Jesus talked like this. He recorded it in the Gospel of John. Again, in John 10, Jesus says, I call my sheep by name. They know my voice, right? <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is my assurance. I'm in relationship with God. Yeah, I believe all the right things, man. I'll die for this. I'll die for this. Every day, I'll die for it. I'll die for this truth. I will. But the relationship, the relationship is my assurance. That's my assurance because it's real. It's real. That's the assurance of every true believer. It's the same reason that Mary believed. It's the same reason that every Christian down through the ages have believed. Now, we got a small group. Some of you I don't know well. I don't know if you know Christ or not. I'll just, I'll just give you this invitation. It's biblical. Yeah, it's out of the Old Testament, but it's, it, it's relevant. It's relevant to, uh, to the moment. Jeremiah 29, 13 and 14. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. You want a Savior? There's your promise. I will be found by you when you seek for me with all your heart. There it is. Do you want a Savior? Or do you want to face the angry lamb? It's up to you. Ball's in your court. Ball is in 
your court. You remember what Jesus said to Thomas? <laughs> he said, be not unbelieving, but believing, right? Be not unbelieving, but believing. Jesus is who He says He is. He is, I am. He is the great Creator God. We believe it. And we believe He's coming back, Revelation twenty two twelve. What did He say? He's coming back how? Quickly? That's how He said it? So, happy Resurrection Sunday, Christian. Hallelujah. Our incarnate, crucified, buried, resurrected, reigning, returning God lives. And I think I want to close with this. I'm going to turn over and just read Revelation 5. You can go with me if you like. Revelation 5. This is a great way to close on on um, Resurrection Sunday. Revelation 5, verse 1. Revelation 5, verse 1. John writes, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures <clears throat> and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number, the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on, on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So we don't worship a dead martyr. Yeah, he died for us. And he was raised up. And he ascended and presently reigns and he's coming back. 
And all I can say to you is, this should make a difference every morning you wake up. Because we, as, as my friend often reminds me, in a few moments we'll be with him. In a few moments we'll see him. We'll be looking at him. We'll be looking him in the eye. Uh, listen, listen, okay, I'm about to be 67. Okay? I used to be your age. And it wasn't very long ago. <laughs> my point is, you are a vapor upon the earth. You will soon meet your Creator. Will you have a great Savior or not? For those of you who know him, all I wanted to do this morning, this evening, is to help you, is to help you treasure what you have. Treasure what you have. Don't take it for granted. Let's pray together.